Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. 2022, a big year for strikes. Norfolk Southern policy. Don't worry if the check engine light comes on. Today on the show, the latest from the Alliance for American Manufacturing and the United Steelworkers. Welcome to the Friday, February 24th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. Two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with one of my favorite guys, Scott Paul, on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Website is AmericanManufacturing.org. I do urge you to check out that website. Get involved in their campaign, and their campaign is... America's infrastructure must be made in America. Now we have a made in America law. Let's be honest. We have that law thanks to President Biden. Here's the issue, enforcing that law. And right now, there's a tug of war going on from special interests trying to get around that law. We're going to talk about that. Also, we're going to talk about the EV charging network standards which were announced by president biden last week this is a very very big deal and right now they are rolling these standards out and some industries already have the standards for one the auto industry the federal highway administration revealed just last week that all ev chargers produced by companies capping the billions made to them in the bipartisan infrastructure law must be assembled in America. And they have to do that by next year. 55% of their component costs must be sourced from the U.S. And there's more. Many companies are chasing, obviously, the federal investment here and have agreed to certain stipulations from the Department of Transportation. Ford has said... It will install public fast chargers at nearly 2,000 of its dealerships by January of 2024. And General Motors has promised up to 40,000 public level 2 EV chargers by 2026. All good stuff happening. And you know what I like about that? Fast chargers. And I've been thinking about this. If, If we go all electric... You know, when you're charging your phone, for example, it takes a while. We got to speed that up. You can't be going to a public charging station and sitting there for a half hour or an hour. So the technology is moving forward, and we're going to address that with uh, Scott Paul. The um, other story we're going to get into, if you were watching the uh, Super Bowl, there was an ad by a company called Temu, T-E-M-U. This is a company that's being operated out of China. It's a Chinese company, and it's an app for you as a customer to get really, 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 really cheap goods. I mean, like a mixer for two bucks, (laughs) jewelry for a couple of bucks. It's crazy, but here's the problem. And you know a lot of people are jumping on this. Most likely, 
more than likely, these goods are made by forced labor. That's how China does it. Let's be honest. And uh, there's an investigation going on. Scott's going to pick up on that as well. And also, more manufacturing jobs. Each and every month, we're seeing more and more manufacturing jobs being created. Some of those jobs that left us years ago coming back from respective countries. 19,000 jobs added in manufacturing in the month of January. Ben Davis will be joining us later in the show on behalf of the United Steelworkers, one of the many proud sponsors of America's Workforce, USW.org. Ben serves as International Affairs Director. Today we're going to talk about Mexico. He is the chair of the Independent Mexico Labor Expert Board. Now, what's this board all about? Well, it was created by Congress as part of the law that implemented the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement in 2020, USMCA. Some call it NAFTA 2.0. It has four members appointed by Democratic leadership, four appointed by Republican leadership, four appointed by the Labor Advisory Committee, which advises the U.S. Trade Rep and the Secretary of Labor on trade negotiations and trade policy. The job is to analyze the progress that Mexico is making with its labor reforms. Well, we have a problem with that. It's not moving fast enough. Uh, So far, there's some good news for cases filed where they have been able to eliminate employer-controlled unions in Mexico and replace them with Democratic unions. The bad news is that way too few cases have any impact on Mexican wages, which, by the way, are about one-tenth of U.S. wages for the same kind of work. Big problem there. There's another issue going on, which we kind of touched on a couple of weeks ago. China, being the sneaky country that they are, you know, they have tariffs in place with steel coming over from China. And instead of sending it directly to the United States, they're sending it to Mexico because we have a trade deal with Mexico, and then Mexico is sending it to the United States. As a result, (laughs) steel imports from Mexico have risen by 141%. I'm telling you, (laughs) you pass a law, and obviously somebody's going to find a way around that law. That happens almost every day in America. So Ben Davis, on behalf of the United Steelworkers, will be our second guest on the show. And while we're talking about the steelworkers, the hearing to determine whether ExxonMobil Corporation's 2021 lockout of 650 members of the steelworkers was unlawful began last week. The lockout was in response to a strike notice issued after several months of unsuccessful contract talks. The refinery, located in Beaumont, Texas, continued to operate through the lockout with assistance from Exxon employees from other plants, as well as temporary local workers. Now, the union, the Steelworkers Union, alleges that Exxon used the lockout to incentivize members to remove the steelworkers as their bargaining rep. An NLRB judge will hear testimony from Exxon reps as well as USW officials, and that process is going on now. 
Now, a brief look into the world of labor, brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Workers went on strike in growing numbers last year as they took advantage of a very tight labor market and pressed employers for better pay and working conditions. Now, we have two sets of data on this, and uh, there's, there's a big difference in the data. First, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they released this data on Wednesday, and it shows nearly 121,000 workers took part in 23 large strikes that began last year. Now, that is up from 81,000 workers taking part in 16 work stoppages in 2021. Meanwhile, a more detailed study from Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations, great university, great research there, they identified at least 424 work stoppages of all sizes last year up from 279 the previous year. That's an increase of 52%. Get this. The work stoppages involved at least 224,000 workers, up from 140,000 in 2021, or a jump of 60%. Now, both the government, the BLS, Bureau of Labor Stats, and Cornell, that data included lockouts, which is when employers force workers off the job amid a labor dispute as opposed to workers walking out by choice. However, the lockouts represented a very tiny share, just seven of the 424 that Cornell found and all of the large work stoppages in the BLS findings were strikes. Now, the sector that saw the most strikes last year Food and accommodations, which accounted for 34% of all work stoppages, and this is according to Cornell. The bulk of those strikes were small and short, involving either Starbucks workers who have mounted that historic organizing campaign with the Union Workers United, or you have fast food workers affiliated with the Fight for 15 campaign. And overall, most of the employees involved in last year's strikes, we're talking 60%, Work in education. Those strikes tended to be larger and longer than the walkouts in the food industry. More than 135,000 education workers were out. A total of 2.5 million strike days, according to Cornell. Now, this got the attention of Liz Schuler at the AFL-CIO, and she said collectively... You put all the workers that went on strike last year. You know how many days that was? Four and a half million. Four and a half million. Liz says, over the course of the pandemic, workers have realized that we don't have to settle for less and that collective action is the best way to improve our pay, benefits, and workplace safety. Working people sacrificed a lot during the pandemic, and we want our hard work and sacrifices to be valued and rewarded in a time when many corporations are seeing record profits. Liz Schuler. We're getting more and more news on what happened three weeks ago today with that train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. The preliminary investigation says it was 100% preventable. What they're looking at right now is a wheel bearing that pretty much melted 
And that led up to the derailment. This is a preliminary, but I have to share with you a story that I picked up yesterday from a great publication called ProPublica. And they point out in October, this is months before what happened in East Palestine, the company, Norfolk Southern, directed a train to keep moving with an overheated wheel that caused it to derail miles later in Sandusky, Ohio. Now, it turns out, according to the publication, Norfolk Southern allows a monitoring team to instruct crews to ignore alerts from train track sensors designed to flag potential mechanical problems. Can you believe that? ProPublica learned of the policy after reviewing the rules of the company, which obviously (laughs) is under the microscope right now. The uh, policy applies specifically to the company's Wayside Detector Help Desk, which monitors data from trackside sensors. Workers on the desk can tell crews to disregard an alert when information is available confirming it is safe to proceed and to continue no faster than 30 miles per hour to the next trackside sensor, which is often miles away. The company's rulebook did not specify what such information might be, and company officials did not respond to questions about the policy. Unbelievable. Unbe- I mean, how many times you drive in your car, the check engine light comes on? Now, some people ignore it, which is probably not a good idea. But there is a reason they put that check engine light on your car. There is a very good reason. You got to take it in for service. And uh, I, I have to make that analogy. Apparently, that's what's been going on in the rail industry. Eh, don't worry about it. We'll get it later. All right. We have to take a quick break. Scott Paul on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing coming up next. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hi, this is Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and I am a huge fan of Flash and America's Workforce Radio and Podcast. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. Now. Back to Ed Flash Ferrans with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us on our live line right now, as he does just about each and every month, is Scott Paul. Scott is the president, executive director of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org. Love their website. Lots of great information. And I like where America's going. We're creating more and more manufacturing jobs. As you know, we lost millions over the last, well, couple of decades when you take a look at it with these trade deals. But uh, 19,000 jobs in January. Scott Paul, you got to be pretty happy about that figure. And that trend has been up every month, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Flash. Thanks for having me on. It's been really great manufacturing job growth. I mean, part of this for a while was like digging out of the uh, the pandemic, right? Uh, but but now it's completely different. It's because there is a uh, intent to have things made in America. And so you've seen all sorts of factory opening announcements in a wide variety of industries. And I'm glad to see this momentum. I think if I'm not mistaken, that the job growth we've seen over the last two years in manufacturing, which is over 800,000 manufacturing jobs now, is the best we've seen, seriously, for like a generation um, mm-hmm. since the, the 19, you know, the 1980s or the 1970s. And so uh, it is significant. And I'm sure you remember, and I certainly do, that, you know, the days where people said, well, those jobs aren't coming back. And it's true. They're not going to all come back the same. But but it doesn't mean that we can't grow manufacturing. And I think that those job job numbers reflect that. And just one more thing about that flash, even with all that job growth, there are still a lot of open positions in manufacturing. In fact, like half a million uh, uh, help wanted ads for manufacturing workers and so there's there really hasn't been a better time uh, to consider a job a career in manufacturing which is very accessible doesn't require a four-year college degree for virtually all of the positions may take some additional skills and training beyond a high school diploma but but nothing that's going to you know set you back more than you know, than, than half a year or a year, and so it's a you know it's a good time, and and it's not an accident. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of intent to this. Yeah, and traditionally, manufacturing jobs pay better than ones that are not in manufacturing, and many of those jobs used to be union jobs. Do you know anything about the wages in a lot of the uh, the new manufacturing jobs today? And I know unions are doing their best to to organize those jobs, but. 
Do you have uh, any data on that right now, Scott? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would say it is quite candidly a mixed picture, and there are a couple of things that have contributed to that. First of all, the percentage of manufacturing jobs, the production jobs that are represented by unions is only about 8%. It used to be a lot higher than that. It used to be more than more than triple that, uh, not not too long ago. And so so and there is a disparity uh, between uh, the the factories that have, are represented by unions and those that are not. The other thing that's held down manufacturing wages a little bit uh, is that global competition and something that economists call labor arbitrage. And so. You know, the plant can say, well, it's easy to move this overseas where I can pay X amount. So we're only going to give you Y amount. And so that's been going on for a while. But even with all of that, uh, Flash, I will say that uh, average wages in manufacturing are above that what you would find in the private sector for uh, workers who don't have a four-year college degree. They tend to have uh, better benefits available, uh, but it's certainly not, I think, you know, what, what you saw maybe, again, a generation ago when there was broad union uh, representation and there were, uh, you know, there, there were uh, a lot of pension plans and what have you. The landscape has changed a little bit, but comparative to other jobs, particularly service sector jobs that don't require a four-year college degree, uh, it's still uh, it's still generally a place where you can have a family-supporting job uh, and that you can climb that economic ladder. Scott, let's talk about the uh, Buy America rules. Now, we have laws in place, and it's important that those laws be enforced, and we explain those laws. And it's my understanding that... Uh, this involves standards for EV chargers, EV electric vehicle chargers. And uh, maybe you can give us some details because uh, this is pretty exciting. Uh, I see the Federal Highway Administration, I guess they've already come out with uh, some rules and regulations. Can you explain what's going on here? Yeah, I will. And I know, look, I know it's hard for folks to imagine now if you don't have an electric vehicle, what all of this is going to look like. Okay, so I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll first acknowledge that. But believe it or not, someday, and it's going to happen sooner than you think, you know, where you see gas stations, there's going to be charging oasis off the side of the interstate or at an intersection uh, in a mid-sized town. Um and it's going to have, you know, uh, plug and, you know, plug and play, basically, uh, electric chargers for vehicles. And the question is, uh, you know, where are those going to be made, right? Where, right. Where's, where's all that going to be made? And so there was some money uh, in the infrastructure bill that was passed, uh, you know, at, at the end of uh, 2021 and is being implemented now uh, to help build out this network all over the country. And I think the very good news in all of this is that, uh, you know, starting immediately, if any company wants to qualify for federal funds to help offset the cost of installing these chargers, the chargers have to be assembled in America. And by basically this time next year, have to have at least 55 percent of the content come from the United States 
uh, as well, uh, including, mm-hmm. you know, all of the iron and steel uh, in, in the in the major component. And so, uh, you know, this is going to be a big, big build out. Um, and, you, you know, you're, you're going to blink. And, you know, where you where you used to see filling stations, you know, in five, 10 years, there's going to be a diversity of things, uh, you know, with with electric chargers. And the very good news is that they're going to be made in America. And, and just what, what I wanted to say also about it is that this is a great example. We were just talking about manufacturing jobs. This is a great example about how public policy investment by America rules can spur on a new industry in the United States. And so thanks to this investment, there are companies all over the United States. Some of them are foreign investors coming in as well from Germany, Australia, uh, but many of them are homegrown uh, that are standing up factories uh, in uh, lots of different states, in the Midwest, in Texas and California, and in the the Northeast and the South, all over, uh, to build these chargers. And so this is yet another uh, opportunity for uh, for growing an industry that's going to be very, very important to mobility, to transportation, uh, as we look ahead over the next five, ten years uh, and beyond. Scott, here's another thing I like about this policy. I'm reading that these chargers have to be more or less universal. For example, Tesla can come up with something different that will only work for Tesla and not a GM or Ford car. They all got to be the same then, right? Yeah, to qualify, that's exactly right. You know, Tesla uh, builds its chargers in Buffalo. Uh, The workers there want to organize, by the way, and Tesla's being a a pain in the butt uh, about that, which is not a surprise. Uh, But right now, yeah, Tesla, on virtually all of its chargers, they're proprietary. They can only plug into Tesla vehicles. And that doesn't do a lot of good for any other vehicle uh, if, if you need a charge. And so to qualify... Tesla basically has to open it up or have a universal adapter where uh, any any vehicle can plug in. And they've, they've agreed to do that, which I think is the very good news, because they have right now the largest infrastructure for charging uh, out there. And there are quickly going to be lots of competitors uh, in this space. And, you know, already, you know, you've seen a lot of different EVs uh, that are being offered by, uh, you know, uh, GM, Ford, uh Stellantis companies, um, and then some of the foreign automakers as well that that have uh, that have production in the United States. Yeah, and so uh, Tesla's not going to be alone, but they have a head start, and they have an enormous charging network out there, and it, it will be uh, in most cases now uh, available to, uh, to to other vehicles to charge as well. You know, referring to those workers in Buffalo, the day after they announced that they wanted to unionize, they were fired. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, which is obviously going to go before the National Labor Relations Board. You're not supposed to do that kind of thing, but that's yeah, that's of course, Tesla. Elon Musk. I know. Yeah, right. A lot of people admire him for different reasons, but he is he is not been a friend of working people um, at all either at their uh, assembly and production factories for the cars or, or, or in this case. So um, it's uh, doesn't deserve all of the praise that he gets for, 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 for being an, you know, an innovator. If you can't see the value of, uh, of workers uh, coming together. Scott, I got another question for you. Fast charging. 
And, and you know, I'm, was, I got this scenario I created in my head. And you know how long it takes to charge your phone if the phone is really down. I mean, it, it takes a while. And you, you talk about these charging stations. You can't be sitting there for an hour or two charging your car when you can fill up your gas in a couple of minutes. And I understand, I guess, the technology is changing on that. I, I guess Ford and GM, they've got these fast chargers now. Do you know any anything about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we're getting to a place both from the battery uh, technology in the vehicles, the the distributive technology, uh, as well as the chargers, where uh, it's it's not going to take uh, that long, you know. And you can get up to eighty percent. It's not going to be necessarily you're going to want to top off your vehicle every time you go to an EV charging station, but you know you can get from uh, a low point to eighty percent. Uh, in less than 10 minutes. And so that's why, you know, this idea of, of a little bit of an oasis where you can grab a bite to eat or, you know, take a take a break or make some calls uh, is going to be appealing. And um, it is going to change, you know, uh, you know, behavior a little bit, but it's not like you're going to be sitting around waiting for two hours, which, which yeah. Is, yeah, and I have, I have a Chevy Volt, uh, which has a, I don't know, basically a 40-mile battery on it, a, a gas backup. When you, I know when you charge it up at home, it takes a long time, which is fine. That's all. I just use it for commuting, so it's no big deal. But if you're out on the road, uh, you want to be able to go. And so that fast charging, you know, getting it to, uh, to 10 minutes or less, where you can get to at least uh, 80%, uh, is going to be a big deal. Um, and, and it is definitely a game changer. And the technology flash is improving every single year Uh, and so it's going to be become more and more accessible uh, to folks it's going to be a different world no doubt no doubt scott paul joining us on our live line today as he does each and every month on behalf of the alliance for american manufacturing urge you to check out their website lots of good information on there americanmanufacturing.org Later in the show, we're going to check in with the Steelworkers. That would be Ben Davis. Ben is the International Affairs Director with the Steelworkers. We'll be back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. 
That's CWAD4.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go back to uh, Washington, D.C., Join Scott Paul on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. All right, Scott, I guess during the Super Bowl, there was an ad for a app. And this app is made by China, Chinese holding company. And it's called it's called Timu, T-E-M-U. Is that is that how you pronounce it? I think that's how you pronounce it, Flash, yeah. What's the story on this company? Yeah, it's, uh, well, look. In general, if things sound too good to be true, they are too good oh, yeah. to be true. And I remember this. I remember seeing this ad. I don't know if you do, but it was like uh, shop like a billionaire. And, and it was kind of very flashy. And it was I remember thinking, I was like, I have no idea what Timu is. And so our team looked into it. And it is a you know, it is a direct to consumer uh, online shopping app that is totally and exclusively based in China. And uh, it is a, you know, we did a little bit of research. Like you can get a five-piece grinding tool for the impossible price of $2.88. Now, you can't even get the raw materials to, to make a real legitimate grinding tool for right. that much. So, you know, something uh, something's a little sketchy uh, about it. Um but but here here's here's the here's the issue here's why we care about it uh you, you know number one um the the way that timu operates in shipping direct from china to a consumer they avoid any customs scrutiny so if there happens to be a product that might have been way, made in the xinjiang region of china, china where there's forced labor uh, for the uh, ethnic uh, Uyghur population uh, mm-hmm. and what the United States has called a genocide, uh, that wouldn't get picked up. Uh, tariffs that might apply uh, wouldn't get picked up. Any sorts of other uh, inspections wouldn't get picked up as well. And so uh, so the way, e- even if you, you know, you know if, if you go through, uh, other sorts of uh, shopping venues like big box stores in the United States, the products that you're buying there, uh, they shipped over from China, uh, some of them, and they paid tariffs on them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't like that we're so dependent on, on China for so many of these consumer products, but at the very least, there ought to be tariffs paid on them, or there ought to be inspections, or there ought to be compliance with these other cu- customs rules. And so, but what happens is kids, you know, in particular, you know, teens, 20-somethings, they look at these deals. They don't think about this stuff, and they click on it, and they get their product in a couple of days. And, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and we've, we, we've lost a little bit of uh, our, our soul 
our economy uh, in the process. And, you know, if this was just a fad, I would be uh, not as concerned, but it's clear that this kind of model has a lasting impression. The top two shopping apps are number one, Timu now, and number two, Shein, which is also a uh, fast fashion direct-to-consumer Chinese shopping app uh, that does, you know, basically garments that you can buy super cheap and then they fall apart after a couple of weeks, right? But sure. but that's, you know, th- th- that disposable society isn't good. Uh, this is obviously displacing companies that are playing by the rules. And this is also exploiting workers because, again, it's impossible. It's impossible to make these products uh for, for, for that kind of for that kind of change. So there's something very, very sketchy uh, about all of it, Flash. Yeah. Well, that's good that you uh, called them out on that. Again, it's Temu, T-E-M-U. Be wary of that. And I like what you said. If it sounds too good to be true, it most likely is. All right, Scott, a couple minutes left here in the show. I understand uh, you're going to be uh, involved in some testimony next week. I believe it's uh, Tuesday. What What's the story on that? Yeah, so if you'll recall at the beginning of this Congress, there was a select committee on the competition between the Chinese Communist Party and the United States uh, that was uh, formed in the House of Representatives. And, and by the way, Fox, this is one of the very few bipartisan actions that, that the House took. You know, everything else was, was, was kind of crazy, but, but the overwhelming majority of Democrats uh, voted with Republicans to form this 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 select committee, uh, and so the first hearing is going to be uh, on uh, on Tuesday uh, the uh, the twenty eighth uh, uh, prime time, uh, so you know seven p.m. Eastern time, and uh, I'll be one of the panelists. I'll be talking about the uh, economic policies of the Chinese Communist Party and how they've impacted our national security, uh, working people, uh, our defense industrial base. Uh, The committee will also hear from uh, a couple of former Trump administration officials, uh, including one who I I do hold in very high regard, uh, Matt Punter, who is is an expert on uh, China security and human rights issues, um, as well as a... uh, uh, a, a, a Chinese dissident uh, who's based here uh, in the United States. And so uh, I think it's a good opportunity to begin this uh, exploration of uh, how we got in to all of this and how we get out of it uh, or how we mitigate the damage uh, that's been done. Because, you know, from the, the, the spy balloon to uh, more aggressive rhetoric towards Taiwan, towards, you know, and towards, you know, reducing uh, Hong Kong's democracy to, uh, to, to rubble, basically, uh, you know, and, and, and just imposing the Chinese Communist Party philosophy there to its treatment of ethnic minorities um, uh, in Tibet and in uh, the, the, the Xinjiang region there's there's a lot look there's a lot to talk about so uh i'm I'm excited to get to it and i'm glad uh there'll be time to talk about how this has impacted working people 
Uh, and I know that there are, you know, a number of members of Congress, senators who you know uh, as well, Flash, who have been working on this for some time. So it's good that we'll have a chance to at least uh, get a little bit more of a spotlight on it. But the key is going to be what happens, you know, what happens after all of this. And this right. committee doesn't have the authority to pass legislation. It's going to be up to others to do that. All they can do is bring bring the issues forward. Uh, and I hope that uh, we'll be successful uh, in moving that along. Yeah, and give us something more to talk about next time we have you on the show. Scott Paul of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, president of the Alliance American Manufacturing dot org. Do check out their website and uh, join their campaign to make sure we keep it made in America. Eighty three percent of registered voters think infrastructure should be made in America. Let's keep moving in that direction. All right, buddy, you take care. Good luck next week. We'll talk to you in a month or so. Okay. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me on, Flash. You got it. All right. Ben Davis is with the Steelworkers, serves as International Affairs Director, and he is coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. You're listening to America's Workforce, and this upcoming segment is brought to you by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. Check them out online at oft-aft.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to line number two, and joining us right now is Ben Davis. Ben is the International Affairs Director for the United Steelworkers, proud sponsors of America's Workforce, USW.org, for complete updates. And uh, Ben is the chair of the Independent Mexico Labor Board. And as you know, we have a trade deal. It's called the USMCA, which was negotiated during the Trump administration. And every time there is some kind of an agreement or law, you got to make sure that that agreement or law is being enforced. And that's what we're here to talk about. Ben Davis, welcome uh, back to uh, America's Workforce. Why don't you explain uh, a little bit the, the makeup of the board? And let, let's start there, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Sure. And, and thanks for having me on. Um, the, uh, the Independent uh, Mexico Labor Expert Board 
was created by Congress um, as part of the law that implements the trade deal between U.S., uh, Mexico, and Canada, the USMCA. Um, that was back in 2020. And the board has uh, 12 members, four are appointed by Democratic leadership in Congress, four are appointed by Republican leadership in Congress, and uh, four are appointed by the Labor Advisory Committee, which is a body that advises the U.S. Trade Representative and the Secretary of Labor on trade policy. And it's made up of uh, union leaders um, from around the country. Our job, the job of the board, is to analyze the progress that Mexico is making with its labor reforms and the cases that are brought under this rapid response mechanism that's part of USMCA and recommend any improvements. So so how does it work here? Maybe you can get into details on, on your rapid response, which is a great campaign. I, I, we've uh, referred to it on the show many, many times, and it's used all around America when there's when when action needs to be taken here. So uh, maybe give me an example. Something goes wrong in Mexico when it comes to workers' rights. Pick it up from there, Ben. Yeah. So what happens here, and this is the only, it, it's part of the trade agreement, and it's the only trade agreement where we have anything like this, but what happens is if something goes wrong in Mexico, Mexican workers can, if they have a problem with their employer, if their employer is denying their rights, right, they can bring a complaint with the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, and then the Department of Labor investigates. They have a month to do that. Um, and if they decide to go ahead, then the company's got a little bit of time to fix the problem. If they don't, they could actually start to face trade sanctions from the U.S. And these ratchet up. So it'll start with just saying, um, we're, we're going to limit the access from this plant. It's a widget plant in Mexico. You can't, uh, you, 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 you're not going to get duty-free access to the U.S. market for your widgets. If you do it a second time, you could get a fine. Your, your exports from that plant could get blocked. If you do it too many times, you could get all your uh, exports from Mexico blocked. And, of course, a lot of these companies are in Mexico to have access to the U.S. market. So it's a serious penalty if they, uh, if they don't treat their workers right. Now, to your knowledge... The workers are speaking up and they're not being threatened or intimidated. I would imagine there are probably some cases of that, but what do you know about that right now? Well, yes and yes. I mean, workers are speaking up and, you know, Mexican workers have, of course, a long history of, of, of forming unions. Uh, some of them are, are democratic unions. Some of them are unions that, frankly, are controlled by, by the companies. Um, and that's been a big problem. And, that, and one of the things that, uh, you know, we're trying to uh, open up in Mexico is the right of workers to form their own unions and, and really uh, push for higher wages because the, the gap between wa- in wages in Mexico and the U.S. is 10 to 1 on average manufacturing workers in the U.S. make 10 times what workers in Mexico make. And, you know, they want better better lives and better wages our members want job security and you know we can compete with with uh, any competition in the world we're not afraid of competition but 10 to 1 is pretty hard odds to beat mhm now it's my understanding that 
There are a lot of unions, but they're company unions in Mexico. And, the vast uh, majority, the vast majority are are unions that are supported, you know, by the employers. Yeah, uh-huh. sometimes set up by the employers. So, and uh, that could be a horror story. They they really don't have any rights. They just say they're a union. They're really not a union. But you've been able to turn a couple of these around. Uh, are you keeping tabs on that, Ben? Uh, we are we are keeping uh, close tabs on that. Um, the good news is that uh, in some of the cases, in, in the cases, so when I say the cases, that's you. That's when a complaint is filed under this rapid response mechanism, um, and uh, workers have been able to eliminate the employer-controlled unions and replace them with democratic unions. Um, although it hasn't been easy to do that. There's been a lot of threats, sometimes violence. Uh, in three cases, they've actually been able to uh, negotiate new contracts, new collective agreements with some major wage and benefit increases, and a couple others they are still in, in negotiations. But still, we're, we're looking at a vast disparity between American workers' wages and Mexican workers' wages, you reference 10 to 1. So if you're, yeah. let's just use an example of $20 an hour in the United States, they're making 2 bucks an hour. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Now, you kind of indicated once they, if they get a Democratic union, that $2 is going to go up, but <laughs> it's got a long way to go to get to 20 though, right? It's got a long way, and that's one problem, and, and you're absolutely right. We've had some good victories in, the, in these cases. I think uh, last time I was on, I, I talked about the General Motors plant, uh, where the workers had a really two-year battle to get the independent union. They brought the case. Um, the U.S. government uh, uh, followed through very effectively, and you know, at one point, uh, GM was looking at uh, a potential uh, uh, penalty of a billion dollars if uh, you know this never went all the way through to a to a an arbitration panel. But they know how to count, and they said, "No, we better we better clean up our act." And they got an independent union. They negotiated a contract with the highest wage increases those workers had ever had. Um, you know, it doesn't fix all the problems, but it's it's definitely an improvement for those folks. But there have only been a handful of cases so far. There have only been seven. And uh, there are hundreds, in fact, thousands of manufacturing plants in, in Mexico. So we have a lot of work to do on this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a long process, long process. Well, it's good to see, and I always reference this, the needle going in the right direction. And I want to point out, too. What we're talking about would not happen under the original agreement of the USMCA, because I recall these labor protections that we're talking about were pushed by labor, by the AFL-CIO, because when Trump came out with it, hey, we got this great deal, these labor protections did not exist. And Congress said, okay, if you want to move forward, you want to make this a good deal, you got to add that component. And that's why we're having this discussion right now. So there is work to be done, but at least it's working. Ben, we got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I got a couple of questions here regarding China and how they're virtually using Mexico to sneak their steel into the United States. Uh, and I'm seeing the Mexican steel imports are up 
I saw one figure at 141%. And is this because of the the trade agreement, the USMCA, that they figured out, oh, well, instead of sending it directly to the U.S., we'll just go through Mexico. <laughs> is that what's happening right now? I mean, yes, and in addition to that, the Inflation Reduction Act is, you know, is a magnet for uh, investment. But a lot of a lot of companies uh, and a lot of countries, like China among them, you know, they want access to the U.S. market, um, and they, uh, but as much as possible, they don't want to actually have to pay wages in the U.S. and and deal with the permits and the regulations. So uh, Mexico basically says, well, why don't you set up shop here? And, you know, we're, we're friends with the U.S., so you can just uh, export this stuff across. And, and you get the benefits of USMCA, so you get duty-free access to the U.S. market without having to pay you what you would. U.S. wages and and bear the regulatory burden. So a lot of people and China is definitely among them are are taking that that option. You know, to some extent, we can't complain because part of the idea was bring investment, you know, back closer to the U.S. Right? We 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 pushed hard to get. Uh, the investment out of China where we've got no control over it and security issues come up. Um, But at the same time, of course, ultimately we want benefits for workers in the U.S., both under the trade policy and under the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So, Ben, can this be adjusted here? Is is there any, you know, dialogue going on? Say, hey, wait a minute, we we try to make a good deal. Can we uh, can we add another component to the deal and say this this can't continue? A lot of that is our job with the expert board is to analyze how things are working and then make some recommendations uh, to the leadership in Congress and, and to the administration. And, you know, we've, we've, we've made a few. We're going to make a few more. And uh, hopefully that, that impacts how um, these policies, both the trade policy and the investment policy, uh, are, are carried out. Because at the end of the day, you know, we don't have to get every every job or every dollar of investment, but American workers deserve a lot better than they've gotten over the last thirty years, and uh, it's our job to help 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 that happen. Well, you got your job cut out for you, brother. I mean, this is this is a lot of work here and a lot of monitoring. So keep doing what you're doing, and please keep in touch with us here on America's Workforce. And we're proud to be part of the fight. Ben Davis, International Affairs Director for the United Steelworkers, USW.org. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, the retired labor leader of the AFL-CIO. Arlene Holt-Baker will be joining us and the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.